Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Today, Masach and Sukkot, Daf Mem Gimel, page 43. Yesterday, I ended with the first uh, Mishnah of our new parak, of the fourth parak, uh, that goes through a pretty lengthy Mishnah describing how many days do we do the mitzvah of Lulav, how many days do we do the mitzvah of our Rebbe, which was the uh, mitzvah of taking the uh, Rebbe, or the Hoshana, and going around uh, the alt, well, doing something with the altar of the temple. Actually, this stuff talks a little bit about what that was, and Anne's going to talk about that mitzvah. But one of the things that we talked about yesterday was I said that it's a little confusing when you read the Mishnah itself because we had that Mishnah to Mishnayot previously with Rabbi Yochanan and his Takana about how many days do we do Lula for um, based on when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And then when we read this Mishnah, Right? Is it talking about what was done in the Beit Hamidach? Is it talking about what was done in the Gavulin or in the Medina, meaning the rest of the country? And so the Gemara actually talks about this exact issue. And be, I'm going to start with the last line of the previous tab. Amai Taltulba al Right? So the question the Gemara is asking, which is about the issue about the, pro, the prohibition of taking Lulav on Shabbat, the Gemara says it's just moving it. Right? And so, in other words, just moving something is prohibited basically because of a rabbinic issue of shvut, right? Of just like sort of, it's, it's supposed to be set aside sort of a thing, right? But this is a mitzvah, right? Right? And because this is a mitzvah, it should actually override it. I'm a rabbi. So rabbi said the reason why there is a prohibition to take the lulav on Shabbat is because maybe a person will take it to an expert to learn how to to learn, maybe how to wave it or to make a bracha. So first of all, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't think waving the lulav is like such a particularly complicated thing to do. But again, to me, this might be another hint. And let me know what you think that like maybe lulav was not so common. Like today, we see tons of people do lulav. But maybe back then, getting your own lulav, doing the mitzvah of lulav, was not as commonplace as it was today. And maybe you did need to seek somebody out so you knew exactly how to do it correctly. That to me is like a little hint here. Um, and then it goes on to say, um, right? And then maybe while you're going to take it to the expert, you accidentally would carry it for Amod and then in a public place. And then you really would have violated Shabbos, meaning you weren't using it for the mitzvah. You were taking it to do something else with it. And this is the same reason why we don't do shofar on Shabbat or why we don't read Megillah on Shabbat. Because there's a concern, yes, maybe we could figure out a way halakhically to say doing the mitzvah itself is okay and there's a way to do it, but there's going to be a bigger issue, which is maybe you're going to end up carrying it when you're not doing the mitzvah or, or something else, and then you really did, you know, you did violate Shabbat. So then the Gemara says, okay, if that's true, then why the first day of Shabbat, as the Mishnah says, should it make a difference? Why the first day of Shabbat should you be allowed to take the Lulav? Nami, right? Uh, sorry, Nami Rishon, uh, sorry, Nami Rishon Ha Takinule Rabbanam Beveto. So it says, no, talking about the first day, Chazal may instituted that, that you take it only in your house, right? Hatniach Acher Takana Kodem Takana. My right? And this works out, okay, after 
the takana that one takes the lulav in your house. But before that takana was done, how do you explain why you were allowed to take lulav on the first day? So then the Gemara goes on to say, Ella Rishon, rather, right, the Gemara is going to say something different. On the first day, right, Right? The do, doing the mitzvah of Lulav in these outlying areas, not just in the temple, right? Um, is uh you know, is a is mean Torah, okay? Lo Rabbanan, right? And the it's, the Chazal didn't make a decree basically to prohibit taking the Lulav on the first day, right? Um, and uh right even though it was really permitted to do, okay? And then, right? But these, these other days of Sukkot, where the mitzvah of Lulav didn't even take an effect by Torah law in the outlying areas, because remember we said that really mean Torah, you only had to do Lulav the first day. You didn't do it all seven days. That was the Takana, right? Then, the, then Chazal issued a decree that you don't take the Lulav on the other days on Shabbat. So here they're sort of making a distinction between the Yom Rishon of before that Takana was made, the Yom Rishon of after that Takana was made. And once that Takana was made, that everybody was going to take the Lulav, then the Chazal prohibited that, in, you know, that if it was, uh, that if it was the first, right, maybe you, uh, that if it was, uh, sorry, if it was on the other days of Sukkot, right, you would not be, you, you, you wouldn't take it. And then it goes on to say, So now they ask something very interesting. So if it's so, right, if it's so, right, that this mitzvah that we're talking about in the first days of mitzvah minat Torah, even everywhere else, right, not just in the Beit HaMijash today, today also, Lulav on the first day of Sukkot that coincides with Shabbat, right, should also still be a mitzvah. And then the Gemara goes on to say, we don't know exactly, we don't know exactly how we establish the month. Therefore, what's possible is, is that what this is basically saying is, is that the day that we observe as the first day of Sukkot is not really Sukkot as, at all. So we don't violate, right? One doesn't violate a rabbinic decree to fulfill a mitzvah that is definitely not a mitzvah minah Torah. Meaning, it's a rabbinic decree to say that you're going to take the lulav on the rest of Sukkot, okay? But if we don't, and it's the Minat Torah one just to take it on the first day of Sukkot. But if we're not sure when it's actually Shabbat, right? So, sorry, if we're not really sure when Sukkot should have started, because we don't, the calendar is a little bit messed up today, because it's not the same way that it used to be. With, with, you know, having the bait in and the sighting of the moon, right? We know that, in, you know, we know that once after the destruction of the temple, there were calendar issues. So once we think that there could be calendar issues, it's possible that we could be observing, right? The first day of Sukkot on Shabbat. And technically, yes, we should take the, the lulav on that day, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe really that wasn't the first day of Sukkot. And really our taking the lulav on that day is rabbinic in nature. And we wouldn't violate Shabbat for that, right? So then with the Gemara is going to basically say, so if it's true, the people in Eretz Yisrael, right, who basically still were doing this sometimes by eyewitness, ter- you know, testimony, right? 
they actually should know exactly when the month is. So maybe for them, right, we should actually override Shabbat because they would be more correct. So the other thing that's interesting here is that it seems to be that there was always, there was at this time when this times of the mission an acknowledgement that there could have been confusion over the calendar and a difference between diaspora communities and maybe Eretz Yisrael communities. So I, I, part of this passage is so fascinating because it's sort of, you know, first of all, that statement about Rabbah, that maybe not everybody knew how to take a lulav. And then here that there's some calendar issues and maybe the holidays weren't, there's always a chance that maybe you weren't observing the holiday exactly when you observing it. And so the Gemara concludes, Ein hachanan. So, right? Ditani chada biyom tov harishon shalchag shalchali yobit shavat so now they're going to compare and contrast a Mishnah and a Vraisa. And the first Mishnah says the following. On the first day of the of Chag that occurs on Shabbat, all the people would bring their Lulavim right to Har Habayit on Friday, which is what our Mishnah t- talked about. And then it says, right, and then it says, the, the Tanya, right now it says, here's a Vraisa, but then there's a different Vraisa that says what? That we actually that they brought their lulavs to the Beit Knesset. Shmaminan kam bizman shebeit hamikdash kayam kam bizman sheein hamikdash kayam shmaminan. And so we learn from here. One Mishnah is talking about when the bringing the lulavs to the Beit Hamikdash is when the temple was in existence. And one Mishnah, when it's talking about taking the lulavim to the to the synagogue, is when the temple was not in existence. And so the Gemara says, yes, this is so. Learn from this. And so I think what's interesting here is the Gemara is basically acknowledging that we can have a variety of Tanaitic statements that refer to different periods of time, and therefore the practices can be different. And that it's well known that Chazal is not always describing halacha as it is at the, the time that that Tanaitic was statement. It's, sorry, in the time that that Tanaitic statement was written, presumably when the Beit Hamidash was already destroyed, right? period of the Tanaim really begins sort of at the end of the Beit HaMikdash, but it doesn't get sort of codified or redacted, however you want to describe that process, till Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, which is many hundreds of years later. So, you know, what they're basically acknowledging here is you could have a mission that's talking about when the Beit HaMikdash stands. You could have a mission that's talking about when the Beit HaMikdash doesn't stand. And I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, that's one of the questions I had even when we read our Mishnah. What's our Mishnah talking about? What time period is it, is it talking about? And I, so I think this brings a whole different level to Tanaitic literature, that that literature is not bound by what was currently happening necessarily when it was written. It can describe something that happened, you know, before, you know, before the period of, of the Tana who maybe necessarily wrote it. It's just a collection of different halachot for different times and places. Okay, I have four comments I want to try to remember. I've been, you know, as you were talking, I kind of took note of them, but I didn't actually write them down. So let's hope I get to all of them. First of all, I've been waiting for this daf for a few reasons, but the main one is, you know, this distinction between what's direct and what's Rabbana on the first day and the rest, you know, and the Beit HaMikdash versus the Gvulin, meaning everywhere else in the land of Israel and the whole world. I feel like in some ways, this is the essence of the distinction between things that took place in the Beit HaMikdash that do not pertain to the actual 
Korbanot or the Ketoret or whatever, right? But other things that took place in the Beit HaMikdash that no longer were extant because the Beit HaMikdash is gone. So certain things had to be shifted and changed. And the difference between how we do Lulav, meaning the fact that it's not just all seven days in the Beit HaMikdash, but not everywhere else. And the fact that we do Lulav everywhere else all seven days, you know, it's it's such a dramatically different experience of your Sukkot as compared to what we can presume it would have been back in the day. So that's item number one. Item number two is a little bit snide, perhaps, but I feel like, you know, this point that you've made, Dana, about the about the different, um, let's call it the different stages, right, of the process of here's the Beit HaMikdash, here's after the Beit HaMikdash, whatever, the, the Mishnayot themselves reflecting different historical realities, different halachic, but within the context of history, halachic realities, um, I feel is something that is, something that we can relate to very well today as we watch this, you know, um, moving target of the coronavirus and how different different realities, you know, I'm speaking in Israel in the past six weeks, we've had a few different realities as things have ch- changed rather dramatically. And if you stopped anybody at any one point and said, what is your practice right now? And compared it to, you know, the different points, you'd have such a dramatically different picture. Certainly in Israel, as I say, over the past six weeks, maybe now going on two months. Um, so that's number two. Number three, the point about this same point about the the historical reality. I think that we also should note that part of the impulse to come up with this, to say this was from one point point in time and this was from a different point of time, is because what happens is that in the Mishnah there's a contradiction, and there are several different kind of knee jerk ways to result. Revol- revol- excuse me, to resolve a contradiction, right? One is to say, well, it's different authors or it's applicable to different circumstances. So in this case, they're not going to say it's different. I don't mean different authors as compared to Rabbi Yudha Nasi. I mean, representing different Tanaitic viewpoints, halachic positions, whatever. And, you know, that's so that's one option. Another is to say that we're going to apply it to different cases, you know, in terms of, I don't know, we've seen it before. This was in a public display. This was in a private display, that kind of thing. That's a application to different um, circumstances. And then, of course, here what we're saying is that because it was it, the the context in which it was, you know, determined to begin with, the I think it really is a very important reflection of how Tanaitic literature developed. But I think we should also be aware, you know, and maybe a little wary because there is this, you know, rabbinic impulse to make sure that there's no real contradiction, that we could resolve the contradiction by saying you know, each one is emerging from a different time, um, which that doesn't mean it's not true. I have no reason to think it's not true. I'm just saying that it's the the reason to find that explanation is to to remove the, you know, icky feeling of there being a contradiction in the, in the Mishnah, um, I think. Um, and lastly, and with this, I'll come to what I want to talk about on the on Amabet. Um, I find it interesting that instead of just talking about Lulav, which you might have thought would be enough, we're talking about Lulav specifically in the context or against the backdrop of Shabbat, including Hilchot Shabbat, not not Hilchot Yom Tov, meaning Hilchot Yom Tov would have been the default. That's the same thing as talking about Lulav, right? Because Lulav begins and ends on Yantif, or begins on Yantif, I suppose we should really say. Um, but then the Hoshana, which is what I'm going to talk about, is also set against the backdrop of, backdrop of Shabbat. And I'm not quite sure yet what to make of this fact that, you know, that we have this kind of, Dana, you once were making a list of like 
topics that are brought in along the way of other topics. I think actually you've been doing this in other Masachot as well. I feel like here's an interesting thing because it's not that Shabbos, you know, the topic of Hilchot Shabbat is so far removed from the Lulav or the or the Arava, but it's also not, it's not exactly where you would go. Meaning, yes, there is, you know, Cholamoy Shabbat. There is Shabbat Cholamoy, rather. There is a Shabbat that, that overlaps with Sukkot. But this seems to be like a, a different kind of thing that we're going to only talk about the the origin or level of obligation when it comes to Lulav and then when it comes to Arava, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, against that backdrop of, backdrop of Shabbat. And I find that to be very interesting. Part of the reason I find that to be very interesting, of course, is exactly this discussion in the context of the Arava. So I'm going to pick it up at the top of Amabet. Arava Shiva Ketzad. Right, the the mission said it's a citation from the mission, and then the Gemara is going to talk about it. The mission is what your Dana, what you said yesterday, what you read yesterday. The arava, you take it for seven days. And what does this mean? Arava should be. I'm sorry. Arava b'shvi'i ma'itama dachia dachia Shabbat. So then the question is, of course, what does it mean that the arava on the seventh day would override Shabbat? The seventh day being Hoshana Rabbah. Right, this the seventh day that you're going to actually do this really massive sem- ceremony of what we do nowadays, anyway, is in, so- in circle, right, to march around in circles. Um, the bima, what they did in the Beit Hamikdash is a little bit different, but in that, this that's not the concern here, right? What seems to be the concern here is what's happening that on the seventh day, when they would take the arava, if it were Shabbat, right, because the mitzvah of the arava is, and this is the presumption, and it's a given throughout this discussion, discussion that the mitzvah of the arava is a oraita commandment. It's a Torah, it's a Torah mitzvah. Then it's going to override Shabbat, um, and it's done every seven days. Meaning, why is it going to override Shabbat? Because to begin with, it's got the status of being a oraita command. I, I would imagine that there's no drabban. I don't know. I don't want to say there's no. I'm sure there's examples that we could come up with, but. It's not an obvious thing that any Durabanan would doche Shabbat, would push away Shabbat, because frankly, we say that really very little will push away Shabbat. You know, the famous one, of course, is Pikuach Nefesh, saving a life would, would push away Shabbat, but that's not what we're talking about here. So when it says, Shabbat, the idea is that because the Arava is Doraita, it will even override Shabbat that you should still do this you know, this march around the bimah, whatever it's going to be, with your arava on Shabbat. The very fact that they instituted this, or let me say this very carefully. Um, we know that the practice was to do the arava encircling Hoshanos, whatever, on Shabbat. So the question then is, why would you do this on Shabbat? Isn't this a problem for Shabbat that you're taking the Arava? Shouldn't this be a problem of carrying, just like the Lulav, etc.? And Rabbi Yochanan says the reason that it was done on Shabbat was to make sure that everybody knew that this process, this practice, was itself min ha-Torah, the right to practice. So then the Gemara says, well, then in that case, Lulav should also... Um, push Shabbos because Lulav is also Minha Torah. And we certainly can cite the chapter and verse for where we get Lulav in the Torah. It's a little bit harder to cite chapter and verse for how we know the Arava is from the Torah. And this, I think, is an important point. And Yordina, we were talking about this, I know, in preparation. 
right? This idea that the Gemara just says it straight out, or really Rabbi Yochanan, I guess, says it straight out that the Arava is Minhatara. And then, of course, the question is, okay, but so where's that mitzvah? Thou shalt take the Arava, right? And, and we don't have it, meaning there's no verse saying so. And yet, the rest of this Amud really goes through case after case, really discussing discussing exactly this question of, you know, why don't we take the Lulav and Shabbat because there's a concern of carrying, fine. And then the question of, well, why doesn't that apply to the Arava? And the the whole, the entirety, well, not the entirety, but nearly the rest of this Amud is really still talking about this backdrop of, backdrop of Shabbat and how it is and why it is that we would override Shabbat for the sake of the Arava. And so then eventually we get to this point, it says uh, it's uh, an objection. The context of the objection is less um, to my interest at this moment, but it's from Abaye who says, Lula v'arava shisha v'shiva. So he says the lulav is taken and the willow, um, the altar is encircled with the willow, either six or seven days. My love, kalulav, my lulav benitila, af arava benitila. So why don't we learn that the same way that we can put these two next to each other and say there's a juxtaposition between lulav and arava, right? The same way that we should say that you take the lulav, why don't we say that we take the arava? Mide iria. It says, you know, why? It's a funny formulation, but why are you saying that these cases are comparable? Just because they're next to each other, just because they're both handling different kinds of, you know, a greenery on Sukkot. Why would you think that these cases are comparable? I'm saying this obviously a little bit tongue in cheek. Perhaps you could just say the mitzvah of lulav is the mitzvah of lulav, specifically the mitzvah of taking a lulav, and the mitzvah of the arava is specifically that thing of of standing it upright to be part of this encircling of the of the um, bima and you know establishing the arava in this way. And so then this Abai continues to raise these objections where he says, Bechol yom et voto yom sheva panim. We know that all throughout Sukkot you encircle the 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 bima once, except for that on Hoshana Rabbi you do it seven times. My love by Rava, lo blue love. Well, you know, aren't we encircling with the Arava? No, really, and this is true, right? People march around with a lulav. Ha amarav nachman ha amarav baravua baarava. No, no, forget that lulav. We're really going to do it in the arava. Meaning, this gemara is going back and forth because this is, of course, the nature of its machloket. Amar lehu amar lecha baarava va'ana mina belulav. You're saying arava, but I'm saying belulav. Itamar reb lazar omer belulav. Rav Shmuel Barnatan Amar Reb Chanina Ba'arava. This machloket doesn't get resolved so easily. You know, at the end of the day, they separate and they say, you know. Yes, they would circle with a lulav, but also they would circle with an arava. Fine. All of this still brings me back to my question, which was, how are we talking about this? All of this is, again, the the primacy of the arava to the extent that it would docha Shabbat, to the extent that the idea that we're going to say that it's a minah Torah mitzvah, and the reason that we do it on Shabbat is to make sure everybody knows that it's a minah Torah mitzvah, and this was puzzling to me until I got to the next Eitavei, the next objection of Abaye, really against Rav Yosef, again, in the context of the rest of the daf, which is still not my primary interest here. But the next bit really is, Lulav docheta Shabbat b'tchilato, v'arava besofo. So Abaye says, you know, we the Lulav takes over Shabbat. It pushes aside Shabbat 
at the beginning of the Chag, and the Arava does at the end. Pamachat, and now we've got a narrative, right? A piece of story. Pamachat chal arava It once happened to be that the seventh day, meaning Hoshana Rabbah, happened out happened to fall on Shabbat. murbiot Shabbat, and they brought branches from the from the willow, meaning from the tree, on erev Shabbat. and they left them in the courtyard of the Beit Hamikdash. So this is now a story like a remember when back in the time of the Beit HaMikdash this is an important thing to know about this business of the Arava because isn't it going to make everything clear? And actually I think it really does. So what happened? The Baitusim. Now we've talked about the Baitusim before. I don't think I have the ability to pronounce this in English. In English it's spelled B-O-E-T-H-U-S-I-A-N I don't know, Bothusians, something like that, right? They're often mentioned together with the Tzedukim, with the Sadducees, right? That these are not mainstream, the mainstream halachic practice, um, practitioners at that time. And right? I'll just They're- interject one thing, that they are traditionally the Antigonus each Socha. Look up Mishnah Gimel, Perkei Avos, Perkei Perkei Mishnah Gimel. We'll talk but, about that at another time. Go on. <laughs> but the real issue here is that they work they're identified as a deviant sect, meaning that's the point, that they are not following the path of, let's call it the majority of Chazal, right? With no offense to Antigonus, Yisoko, that's not the point here, right? Meaning not he's not he's not at stake, right? Um, and then, so what happens then is that what they did, right? meaning these Aravot are in the Azara of the Ben Mikdash, and the Baitusim see them, and they take them, right? What they did was they took them and they hid them away under stones, meaning stones, I guess, somewhere in the courtyard. I don't think they took them out of the Beit HaMikdash, or if they did, there's no there's no indication of that. But the point is that they've hidden them away so that then presumably, right, the next day, everybody's going to come to get them because they've done this on Erev Shabbat in preparation for Shabbat so that they should be there, that nobody should carry them on Shabbat because that would be a violation of Shabbat. But taking the Arava, not taking the Arava, walking around doing this encircling march, whatever Hoshanos with the Arava on Shabbat would have been considered acceptable when Hoshana Rabba falls out on Shabbat. But they've hid them to make sure or to try to make sure that Chazal themselves will not be able to do this mitzvah of Hoshanos. Because the concern is, I mean, the what they know is because they knew enough halacha to know what the what what Chazal were going to prioritize. They said that they would not they should not be moving those stones because that would be muksa on Shabbat, right? The idea of moving the stones that are on top of the Hoshanos, on top of the arava would be a big mess and a violation of Shabbat. So then lamachar the next day, meaning on Shabbat Hoshana Rabbah, hekiru behen So somebody who's not so knowledgeable noticed that these branches are under the stones. What did they do? So what happened? Um, they didn't really know all the details, right? So what they did was they pulled them out from, I mean, they don't know all the details of halacha, of how to keep Shabbat, or the fact that this was going to be a problem of Shabbat. So they somehow extricated them from under the stones. And then the Kohanim brought them and they stood them up on the sides of the Mizbeach. Meaning, so the Baitusim's plot didn't work. But on the other hand, there's a violation of Shabbat. 
because to that extent it did work, right? They took the they took the branches and put them under the stones. The whole point is that the Baitusi never thought that waving the arava was going to violate was going to override Shabbat. So now I have an answer, some kind of historical and perhaps even political answer to why it is that the there's such an urgency in the Gemara to establish um, to establish the arava as minha Torah, even though we don't have a thou shalt kind of mitzvah in the Torah itself to 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 handle this arava in this way. Namely, the Baitusim say that handling the arava does not override Shabbat. So there's this fight between the Baitusim and Chazal, saying where Chazal say, yes, it does. Yes, it does override Shabbat. And therefore, there's going to be a great emphasis of, to say, you do this on Shabbat. And the reason you do this on Shabbat is to show that it's Min HaTorah. And the reason that you say it's Min HaTorah is you know, to circle back, to say that quite literally, it overrides Shabbat. That's the whole point, right? And so... Now I've come to really the end of the Amud, and I'm going to pause here, you know, to stop here. I don't. The conversation is not entirely fully over. We have more dapim to come, but I think that when we're going to talk about the halachic development and the historical context, today's daf was really chock full of exactly that. I would say the theme of this daf is historical, right? Like that there is sometimes historical reasonings for how halacha is presented why it's written about in a certain way, or why we want to make sure to establish it correctly. So I, this stuff has, it's like just chock full of a lot of history, right? Before the Beit HaMikdash, after the Beit HaMikdash, how do we deal with different sects? And how does that all impact the establishment of Halakha? I think that it's also really tricky, right? I think that if you grow up thinking that Halakha and Chazal are sacrosanct, that nothing is developmental, right? So I want to be careful to say that we're not we're not we're not speaking in any way that undermines the halacha itself here, right? There's a very clear distinction. Everybody will agree between what happened in the Beit Hamikdash and what happens not in the Beit Hamikdash. Everybody will agree that Chazal were in contrast and and often fought against the sectarians amongst them, right? So the fact that we have decrees that establish what the halacha is going to be against a, a a real life kind of backdrop should not startle anybody. That's like, I, I want to be careful here because I think that some of this can be a little bit, um, I don't know, startling to realize once you see it black and white on the daf and then say, what's going on here? So what's going on here is really more than we can handle in one day on a daf yomi shir, but, but still um, to at least acknowledge the challenge of it. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Fiber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.